that they can feel the weight. We need to feel the weight of this principle. And so some of the things that we're going to be dealing with are the following. The most obvious and glaring one is, what is it? I mean, we need to be able to define it. What baptism is from a biblical standpoint, not from man, not from our own understanding, but to understand it according to the Lord. I mean, that's significant. And so we're going to be looking at what baptism is all the way from Genesis to Revelation, if you will. And then we're also going to be dealing with some of the controversy in that, do we immerse or do we sprinkle? Do we baptize infants? Think about this. Protestantism, move Catholicism aside for a second. Protestantism itself is not unified in this measure at all. I mean, you could, you, on one side of the aisle, you got United Methodists, and you have Lutherans, and you have Presbyterians, and they say sprinkling's fine, you, can, you baptize infants. You have the other side that say, whoa, time out, you don't do that. Baptism is supposed to be immersion. And baptism, we need to wait till someone can actually make the decision to walk with the Lord. And so it's, it's just fascinating that Protestantism itself is not unified. And they're diametrically so opposed to one another. They're very, very different. And I'm going to tell you this. They're not both right. Somebody's wrong. So we need to dig into this and you know from Scripture, what do we do with this? How are we supposed to understand this? What does the Lord want us to practice? That needs to be our main concern. Something else we're going to look at is this. Is baptism necessary? Is it necessary for believers? This is huge because I'm going to tell you what I am coming across of lately is that people appreciate baptism. They think it's a good thing. It's a wonderful expression of the faith, but it's not obligatory. It's, you don't, you're not obligated to keep it. You're not obligated to do it. There's no command. There's no necessity. There's no urgency. This is one of the things that we're going to attack within this series. And this actually will probably be here for a couple weeks. And so we're going, to, and we're going to go through other things as well. But just to give you an idea, some of the points that we're going to be uh, dealing with. Um, with that said, the first thing I want to mention today is this. Baptism, the concept of baptism is literally woven throughout the tapestry of the word, of scripture. Now listen to me carefully. This is not a New Testament phenomenon, okay? You go to the Old Testament, the Old Testament is riddled, riddled with passages, various passages portraying a baptism-like situation all over the place and in various contexts. It's incredible, and as you go from one to another, to the next, to the next, what happens with each one, you peel back another layer of understanding of what baptism really is in the sight of God and what it means to him and how it affects relationship between us and the Father. And so what I want to do today is I actually want to begin today by taking you to the Old Testament. I want to build a foundation, an understanding, a reverence, a, a respect for this institution, for this event, before we ever even get into the New Testament. And so, I'll kind of lead this off with a little bit of Jewish tradition. The rabbis teach that baptism goes all the way back to the garden. Now, this is fascinating. They teach when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, 
What they say is that immediately they went into a state of repentance. And Adam went and immersed in the Jordan River. And Eve went and immersed in the Tigris. Now what's amazing to me is two things. Number one, the rabbis take baptism all the way back to the very beginning. But the second thing that is amazing to me is they associate baptism with repentance. That there is a direct correlation, there is a direct connection. And that is something today you are going to see as a fact. It is a biblical fact, so that's really interesting. Now, to get biblical, as we open up our Bibles, we get to the first, we, we, we look at creation account. We read about Adam and Eve, and almost immediately after that, we're confronted with the, the, the greatest cataclysmic event the world has ever seen. And what is that? It's the flood. I want you to think about something, because this is so important when it comes to baptism. God flooded the world. In other words, he baptized it, he immersed it. This is what he did. The question is, and where I want you to really go with this in understanding baptism, its need, its purpose, why did God baptize the earth? Why did he immerse it? Sin. As you would read in Genesis, Hamas, violence. It becomes so wicked, so vile, it had to be purified. How did the Lord choose to purify the earth? Baptism. I mean, we can learn something from this. We can draw from this that, okay, when we're talking about baptism, we're talking about a purification from sin. There's a cleansing process. Now, this is fascinating, but I want to just jump briefly to the New Testament because Peter makes this connection. The interesting thing about Peter is he comes at it from a different angle. And I want to share with you what he says. This is what he says in 1 Peter 3.20. When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah... While the ark being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Now, I want to point something out. Peter was very careful in his choice of words. Okay? He didn't say saved from water. That's what you would expect him to say because God destroyed the earth. And you would expect him to say, no, he was saved from water. That's not what he says. In the Greek, it stands true. He says, save dia, through water. Now, I'm going to tell you, when you start throwing words, and we've talked about this, when you start throwing salvation on the table, you need to have, you got my undivided attention. Now I know what we're talking about is life and death. This is meaningful. It goes to the top of my list. And Peter's throwing terms around like salvation, that Noah was saved through baptism, through the water. This is amazing. Now he goes on and he says this. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh. In other words, we're not like the Gentiles or Greeks that, you know, the reason we take a bath is to wash the dirt off. That's not what this is. This is what, he said. This is what he's Peter saying. And he's referring to Yeshua's baptism. That we're going into his baptism. And one thing we discover right here, right now, is baptism is not simply a fleshly thing. It is spiritual. And if you don't get that component, you will never understand baptism. You will never get it. It is totally a spiritual event. All right? Let's fast forward a moment. We're going to go back to the Torah. The time where God takes his people out of Egypt. 
He delivers them. He brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai for one purpose. He wants to enter into covenant with them. This is why he has brought them. We're going to enter into covenant. But here's what's interesting. He has a requirement of them. They have to do something. There's one thing specifically mentioned, and I want to share that with you. As we open up in Exodus 19, verse 10, we read, Then the Lord said to Moshe, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. They have to wash their clothes. Now you might say, well, what's, you know, we wash clothes all the time. What's that mean? You need to understand the nomenclature of Torah. When the Torah presents this, that it says washing clothes, it is saying baptism. And let me just give you an example. See, this is why it's so important. And, uh, and I know you've heard me say this before. Torah is not meant to be read in isolated forms, where I take one passage and that's it. Torah is only meant to be read in its totality. This is how it's to be understood. Let me give you an example. When I go to Leviticus 11, there it says, hey, if a if, if clean animal dies of its own, of natural causes, or is torn by beast, and you eat of it, see the Torah kind of frowns upon it, you're not supposed to eat of it, even though it's clean, but if you do eat of this clean animal that died of itself and was torn by beasts, then you shall wash your clothes. Leviticus 11 is very clear. What's interesting is just go a couple chapters later, Leviticus 17, the very exact same commandment. If you eat an animal that's clean, that dies of itself or it's torn by beasts, well then you shall wash your clothes and you shall bathe in water. And so, this is why I point this out, is when we see this, that Israel's come to the foot of the mountain, and they're told, you're washing your clothes. What's being implied is, you need to wash your body, your entire body. You're going to be prepared. You're going through a baptism, if you will. This is what's happening. Now, this is significant, because there's something about this event that we learn. They have come and drawn near to God to come into covenant with him. This is about covenant. And before they do that, they enter into a mikvah. They enter into a washing, into a baptism. You want to understand the baptism, Yeshua's baptism that we're baptized into and what it is we're being baptized into? We're coming into covenant. We're coming to be children of the new covenant. It's the same. The very same requirements that the Lord set up at Sinai are the same requirements that exist today for the new covenant. Absolutely amazing. Let's jump ahead a little bit further to Exodus 30. And the Lord, he gives commands in regard to the, tab, the tabernacle that they, they need to erect a tabernacle and there's all these elements that belong in the tabernacle, one of which is the laver. And let me read this to you. And you shall make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze. Why? For washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet and water from it. Okay, so when Aaron and his sons, they come into the temple area, here's your, your brazen laver right here. They would go to those waters and they would wash. And it's interesting. Remember, look at what it says here. Let me go back. They shall wash their hands and their feet. What did we learn? We learned this a couple weeks ago. What is the beginning of a man? It is his hand. What is, his, what is the end of a man? It is his feet. From beginning to the end of man, the priest was to be washed. Wash his hands and feet every time he comes in there. Now, the question is, why? 
Why do you wash your hands? What, what is it about that the priest needs to do this? Think about it. They're drawing near to the Lord. Do you understand? This is a concept that we need to get with baptism. When we draw near to the Lord, there's going to be something required. This was required of the priest. They did not think about entering the temple unless they washed as they're coming in to draw near to the Lord. And just to prove this, look at the, what the next, uh, the next verse says in verse 20. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, what do they do? They shall wash with water lest they die. Now, you can't put more emphasis on this regulation of washing than this. You come, you draw near to me, and you do not purge yourself, you do not cleanse yourself, you're a dead man. I mean, think about this. So the first thing, this is what's amazing, and especially as we get into the, into the New Testament, the first thing that is on the mind of the priest as they're drawing near to God, one thing above all else, I have to wash. This is the teaching of Torah, putting an urgency on this. I want to be clear on something. It didn't stop with the priests. No, it didn't. The people, anyone that would go up to the temple, do you know what, what they did? They washed before they went up. This is what they did. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you'll be hard-pressed when you go to the city of Jerusalem. You're going to be hard-pressed to not run into a mikvah. And it looks like this. This is actually one out of Jerusalem, okay? This is a mikvah. It's a, it's a ritual pool for cleansing. These things are all over the place in Israel. In fact, as of what, 2011, I believe, over 850 of these have been found in Israel. Over 850. This is amazing. And just to further this, to put this in perspective, let me read you some commentary. The mikvah oat were so widely dispersed and integral to Jewish life of the Second Temple period that they have been found in every Jewish archaeological site in the land of Israel and are located in the homes of people from every social class. See, what you need to understand is, is they made it as readily available because you as a person, man, woman, you don't go into the temple without being cleansed. You don't draw near to God a holy God, a righteous God, without preparing. This is what you do. And so these, these mikvah oat were, were everywhere just to ensure, and, and they were even, they're finding them on main highways going into Jerusalem because the pilgrims coming in for, for the festivals, they would make sure they would cleanse themselves. They were not going to show up for a Passover without being purified. This is the reality and we learn so much from this. Now, let me take this a, a, a step further. In Hebrew, I want to show you this. The definition is very simple. Mikvah is simply a collection, or it's a reservoir. And it could be a reservoir of water, which is this, is this is why they call it a mikvah. There is another name, or there is another definition for this very same Hebrew word. And this is what I want to show you. It is hope. It's hope. And you think about that. So you go, you're coming into the, the waters of a mikvah, and you're coming into the waters of hope. When you come into the waters of the baptism of Yeshua, you are coming into the waters of hope. See, we were once, we were outside. We were separated from God. We have a problem. Sin is the problem. But God has created the solution. He has created the waters of hope. 
And that's why, you know, this was an integral part of Jewish life. It was indigenous to them. It was just the way of life. They longed to go in there. Why? Because they wanted to be joined with God. And they revered God as holy. Something that we, in our Western culture, we have no concept of holiness at all. Absolutely none. So we, we got to get back to our Jewish roots and understanding the definition of a mikvah, the purpose of this mikvah, of, of baptism. I want you to understand, for Jewish people, it's never been a symbolic gesture. It's not a symbolic gesture. It's a spiritual reality. It's completely spiritual in their mind. Let me take you and show you how the Orthodox define this term. This is fascinating. They define it this way. A mikvah is a ritual pool of water used for the purpose of attaining ritual purity. I want to stop right there. When you see, see, before, I used to read these terms, ritual purity, and that just sounds like legalism. It's got, it just drips of legalism, not just senseless nonsense that people did just because they're a bunch of you know, sinful, hateful people. It's spiritual. Do you understand? It means that it's not the worldly like. This is, has a concept of holiness and righteousness to it. And so, a ritual pool of water used for the purpose of attaining ritual purity, immersion in a mikvah is performed for the following main purposes. They give two main purposes. You want to pay close attention to what we're about to see. The first one is this. It is used in connection with repentance to remove the impurity of sin. This is amazing. The heart of repentance leads you to the waters of hope. That's what happens. And for what purpose? To remove sin. See, this is not for show. This is not some you know, meaningless outward expression of your faith. This is spiritual entirely. Look at this. The second thing that we read here is this. It is also used in connection with conversion. Conversion. Think about this. In the context of the baptism of Yeshua, why is anyone going to get baptized in Yeshua? That baptism is to convert, to become disciples of Yeshua, to become followers of her, of him, to come into the faith. That's what it's for. Now listen to what happens as we go on. Because the convert has taken upon himself or herself to adopt the lifestyle of a Jew that is based on the recognition of God as king of the universe and on the obligation to perform the commandments of the Torah. Absolutely mind-blowing. As they affiliate... Okay, so conversion is specifically affiliated with baptism with going through the mikvah, but it's all under the guidance and understanding of two things. These two things. Recognition of God as king of the universe. We must confess him. You must confess him as Lord of heaven and earth. And the other thing is, is you know that what you're being immersed into is commitment. You are going to walk in his commandments. You're going to be, and this is what Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. This is the reality. This is what's being asked. We're going to keep the Torah. These are the things. Now, this is interesting because we keep running over this in this particular series. It's the structure of the faith. 
These two very things are the very things that define the elect in the book of Revelation. As we look in Revelation 14, 12, it says, here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God, the Torah, and the faith of Yeshua. The very things that are tied with conversion. Absolutely amazing when you look at this. Now, something I want to mention here in addition to this if you wanted to convert to the faith, and it's being presented here through the Orthodox and through the history of the Jewish people, before Yeshua ever came on the scene, before there was a gospel of Yeshua going forth, if you wanted to convert, it was never optional, presented as an option that, hey, if, you, if you'd like, you, could, you, you should really go through a mikvah. And, and you know, one of the other conversions, as, as we know, proselyte, you had to be circumcised. The Torah is very clear on this. So, you know, you, 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 know, you definitely got to be circumcised. But, you know, as far as the, you know, the, the washing, eh, you know, it's a good thing to do, but don't worry about it. I'm making a point. You cannot go anywhere in the history of the Jewish people with that mindset. With a mindset that we see has crept into Christianity today. It doesn't exist. In fact, let me show you how strongly they believed in this. And I'm going to take you back to the Talmud for a second, the Babylonian Talmud. The sages said, whether the convert had performed ritual ablution, which is to say a mikvah, going through baptism, but had not been circumcised, or whether he had been circumcised but had not performed the prescribed ritual ablution, he is not a proper proselyte, unless he has been circumcised and has performed the prescribed ritual ablution. In other words, what they're saying is, you will never be, con you can get circumcised. If you do not go through this baptism, you are not a convert. You are not one of us. You're not in the faith. Could you possibly put any more emphasis on this baptism? No, you could not. And this is in the, explicitly in the context of conversion. Feel the weight of this. We need to feel the weight of this. Let me take it a step further and show you a modern-day Jewish commentary from the Jewish Encyclopedia. This is what we read. To receive the Spirit of God. You cannot make this stuff up. To receive the Spirit of God or to be permitted to stand in the presence of God, man must undergo baptism. Now, what's really going to blow your mind, even part of today but even into next week, is you're going to see that is the expectation in the New Testament. That is the expectation. That is the total Jewish mindset, is that you will go through this evolution, you will go through this baptism, and you can expect the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come. This is amazing, and this is, this is Jewish commentary. How amazing is this? Let me take you back to the Torah. I want to take you to Numbers 19. The chapter is all dedicated to what is known as the red heifer, and it was a really interesting and unique sacrifice because the heifer would all be burned, everything. Its head, its hide, its blood, its offal, everything. Nothing was removed. The entire thing was burned. And it was burned outside the camp. And it was burned for a very specific purpose, okay? I want to read to you what that purpose is as we go into Numbers 19, verse 9. Then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer. See, they're after the ashes. They want the ashes. And store them outside the camp in a clean place, and they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification. And what is that purification from? 
from sin. Absolutely from sin. This is an amazing passage because here we see a baptism-like situation where the Lord is cleansing with water and it's being attributed to cleansing from sin. Now, this is a very unique situation, Numbers 19. Number one, the, the reason the red heifer was killed was if you touched a dead body. See, that's what, if you touched a grave, you touched a bone, you have been exposed to death. Now, the wages of sin is death. You are exposed to sin in its complete form. You become unclean. It's, it's an abomination to God. It was never God's design for his people to experience this. So he provides a way for purification, to go to these waters of hope, to cleanse the sin from you so that you can be in his presence. Okay, this is, this is powerful when we look at this. And so we're going to move on, continuing on here. Well, and one other thing to mention before we move on to, to help us with this. Something else about these waters of purification, which really show themselves as a foreshadow, and I mean a foreshadow of the baptism of the Messiah, Yeshua, is this. This particular baptism, if you will, was mixed with a sacrifice. See, the ashes, the heifer had to give its life, and it's mixed with the water, literally mixed with the water of purification. And that purified you. I want you to think about and what we're even going to read today, getting into Yeshua and his baptism and what that really means. I mean, it is a picture to picture. It is incredible because we're mixing water with the sacrifice. This is what we're going to see. Now, having said that, I want to move on to verse 19. The clean shall person shall sprinkle the unclean. Okay, on the third day and on the seventh day, and on the seventh day, what does he do? He shall purify himself. Read that. He shall purify. In other words, this part, he's taken, he's participating in this. He's making a, a, a cognitive decision to move forward. It's his decision. He shall purify himself. What does he do? He washes his clothes and bathes in water. There's a mikvah. There's a baptism. He's being immersed. And at evening, he shall be clean. You want to know how important it was to do this? We continue on in verse 20. We read this. But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off from among the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of purification has not been sprinkled on. He is unclean. See, this is similar to the priest. You don't do this. You don't wash. You die. You're cut off. You know, and so the, the point here, what I want you to draw from this is baptism, as we look at all the variations thereof in, in the Torah, in the, in the Old Testament, it's not simply presented as something, this is wonderful to do. It's a great expression of my faith. No, no, no. It's way more than that. It's way more than that. It's completely spiritual in nature. It is imperative to do. It is the will of God. It's what he called us to do. So, as we look at all these stories, just take away from the beauty, take away from it the, 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 the power, the, the meaning of baptism and its importance. And what we're going to do is we're going to take this into the New Testament now. And I'm going to take you to Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. And this is what we read. 
And those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I have a reason for beginning, and we're not going to Yeshua's baptism first. We're going to go to John's baptism first. And the reason is, I've had so many people over the years, people that I've, I've even baptized, uh, ask me this question. What about John's baptism? Is that a different baptism? Or is that the same baptism? What do, what do you do with this? And so, we're going to dig into this. And here we see John, his ministry was repentance. This is very important, moving on to verse 5. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan. And what were they doing? Confessing their sins. So the entire ministry of John the Baptist was repent, repent, that's it. And what did he do? He brought them into mikvah. He brought them into baptism. That's why he's called Yochanan the Immerser, right? John the Baptist. It's his entire ministry is bent on that. And here again, we see repentance coinciding with mikvah coinciding with baptism. But then we continue and get to what I really want to get to. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. Okay, makes it very clear, but then he goes on and says this, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with what? With Holy Spirit and fire. Now, you need to recognize John himself made a distinction, a very clear distinction between his baptism and Yeshua's baptism. Yeshua's baptism is superior in every way. These waters of hope are waters of promise, where the promises that were made by the prophets, where, that, where Joel says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, where Jeremiah says, behold, thus says the Lord, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them out of the land of Egypt, though I was a husband to them, a covenant which they broke. No, 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 this is, this is the baptism a baptism into that new covenant, a baptism of Holy Spirit and fire. Superior in every way. And so you try, you know, it's one thing you have all this weight that we could collect and all this meaning from the Torah and the prophets from the Old Testament. And you could just bring that to John's baptism and you could feel the necessity and the weight just in his baptism, but how much more in Yeshua's knowing what's to come, knowing this is a baptism of power. Now, with that said, I want to give you a living example of this distinction. And getting into Acts 19, the Apostle Paul is bringing the gospel out. And in Acts 18, verse 1, we read this. And it, came, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, some you need to understand, this is his expectation. For people that believe, his expectation is, you're to receive the power of God, the Holy Spirit. So they said to him, well, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into then what were you baptized? Do you just get that? He just tied baptism in with the faith. In other words, what I'm saying, as this said, his expectation is, is, okay, you're in the faith, you believe, well, how come you don't have the Holy Spirit? 
Well, we were baptized into John's baptism. You know, this is the deal. This is what they're going to go on and say. But he's tying this together. This Holy, this Holy Spirit, this, this, this type of baptism. I mean, I look at this and I'm in awe. Did you receive the Spirit? And he doesn't understand why then were you baptized? Or what baptism were you baptized with? And then, of course, they say into John's baptism. Now it makes sense. The distinction is made. John himself said he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the Holy Spirit because they weren't baptized in the right baptism. Think about how much emphasis we need to put on the right baptism. We need to have the right baptism. We need to be baptized in Yeshua. And we continue on. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Messiah Yeshua. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Yeshua. Now here's what's interesting. They were rebaptized. They were rebaptized because they had not embraced, they had not participated in the baptism, the baptism they needed, the baptism into the new covenant, into the power. And when Paul laid hands on them, look at this, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. See, you remember what we were talking about as as we looked at this expectation in the Jewish encyclopedia to receive the Spirit of God, to stand in the presence of God, what do you need? You need to go through this baptism. You need to go through mikvah. And you literally see an example of exactly what they laid out. These these believers went through this, they confessed Yeshua, and immediately power came down. Now, is it always like that? Even in the New Testament, it is not. Where we see this manifestation of prophecy and of gift of tongues. I mean, that's at the Lord's discretion, but there is Holy Spirit given. And so this is very important. Now, Going to Ephesians 4.4, I want to tie it in with this. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, and what? One baptism. There's only one baptism. And Paul's referring to the Messiah, Yeshua. There's only one baptism that leads you into the new covenant. There's only one baptism that leads you to be anointed with the power from on high. Is that one. Now, digging into this, deeper to understand what this baptism is, I want to take you to Romans 6. And this is what we read. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How then shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized, as many as, uh, of us as were baptized into Messiah Yeshua were baptized into his death? This is, this is an eye-opener in the sense of if we're going to go out, we're going to proclaim the gospel, well, you need to be baptized. What do you explain to them? Why? What is this about this baptism? What is the significance? What does it mean for me to go into the water? See, when you actually go in and you are immersed, you are going into the grave and you are literally emulating the death of the Messiah. You are testifying to the truth of who he is that he paid the price for sins. But not just that, then Paul goes on and he says, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Messiah was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk 
and the newness of life. So we go down into the water. We're buried with him in death and we're mindful of the price that he paid, the sacrifice he made for us. And we can have the confidence knowing we are in the waters of hope that when we arise out of that water, we are new. We are a new creation. If anyone is in Messiah Yeshua, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is the spiritual reality that an immersee needs to have before they enter into the waters. They have to understand literally what's going on. They have to understand on a spiritual level. This is not fleshly. None of this is fleshly. Do not look at this thing with your eyes. You're looking at it through your heart, through faith in Yeshua. And that when you go down in this, you are going to come up and you will never again walk with the devil. The chains are to be broken and they are broken through his sacrifice and the power of the resurrection. We're no longer to be slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness, clinging to his Torah. This is what we are called to do. You know, I got to tell you, just briefly, for me, and hopefully you feel this, for me in ministry, you experience a lot of intense things. You come across a lot of things. I've had Satanists come and meet me and tell me they've been looking for me. I've had a lot of intense moments uh, in ministry. Uh, confrontations with demons. I've had intense things going on. I'm going to tell you this. I've experienced Passover. I experienced the joy of it, the power of it. I experienced Sukkot. I experienced all these things, and I'm going to tell you, none of them compare to the intensity that I have bore, that I have felt with baptism. There's no other way I can say this. I'm not glamorizing this. I'm not trying to make it sound powerful. I'm telling you my testimony. I've never experienced anything this intense in my life. It's unbelievable. And coming into this, when I was baptized, long before Corner Fringe existed, I was baptizing people, and I had no idea, no appreciation for really what I was getting into and what was taking place. Oh, but I learned. You learn. See, and, and then you realize, <laughs> this is, I'm on the front lines of war. Because what you're doing is you're literally, that moment that they're going in, they have that faith. They've made that confession. I'm telling you, they go into that water. They follow God's commandment to go into his death and resurrection. Dude, it awakens the kingdom of the devil. He absolutely freaks out. There's something so powerful about this. And I can tell you just being a part of it, that it shakes the, the gates of hell. It's that intense. And so now, when I do it in baptism, guess what Daniel does? He fasts. It's not a joke. I do not mess around. I am in such prayer and meditation during the time knowing I'm going up against principalities and powers. This is not to be trifled with. This is serious business. It's funny because... A couple of years ago, I came across a passage and I was floored. Have any of you heard of the D.K.? The D.K. is one of the oldest Christian manuscripts, or some would say Jewish Christian manuscripts, in existence. I mean, it dates back to the late first, they say, early second century. 
It's so vital. It's, it's a precious document of antiquity for us to understand the minds of, of, of Christians. And, and many scholars believe that, or some scholars believe that it was actually written by a, by a Jewish Christian or a Messianic Jew uh, simply because of some verbiage. I personally don't ascribe to that, but be that as it may, this is an incredible, an incredible piece of antiquity, especially for the faith. And there's interesting statements found in this document. And so I want to share something with you so that you can also feel the weight of what I'm telling you is the truth. In regard to baptism, the D.K. comments on this. Before the baptism, let the one baptizing and the one who is to be baptized fast, as well as any others who are able. Also, you must instruct one who is to be baptized to fast for one or two days beforehand. That floored me, especially since I was already doing it. And it told me, that these people know they're at war. John the Baptist, there was a reason he didn't clothe himself in soft garments and ate lavishly. That he lived on locusts and honey. His entire ministry was dedicated to baptizing people, to bringing them out of the gates of hell into the waters of hope. I mean, this is powerful. These people know they're at war. I was stunned. I was like, my goodness. How real is this? An amazing thing. And so fasting, that's key. We'll be talking about that at some point in the future here. Uh, a, a pretty important teaching for us living in these days. I want to take you to Matthew 28. And this will be the last passage we dig into. Yeshua came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And what do we do? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The first thing I want to mention, there's a few things here we need to deal with. But the first thing I want to mention, is there anywhere in here at all, any wiggle room, in regard to portraying baptism as anything else other than it's a command. It's, this is not a suggestion. The one thing Yeshua mentions when he commands his disciples to go out and commands his disciples to go make disciples, mentions one thing, baptize them, immerse them. Could you put more emphasis on this? You could not possibly do it. How is it that this is not at the top of the list anymore? And how is it that we've reduced baptism to just a state to, to be a thing that's, well, it's a good expression of the faith. Instead of creating such an urgency, people are asking you, please, would you baptize me? I need to be baptized. If they're not saying that to you, you're not explaining it right. Something's wrong. The other thing I want to mention about this passage is that this passage is being attacked today. Hotly debated. You can, the, 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 the emails that I've gotten and the, the questions I've gotten have been mind-blowing to me, all due to that wonderful internet that produces so much truth that you can believe everything that's on it. And that is that there is a concept going around attacking the formula, as they call, right? The, 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 the formula in, in the sense of, here's the formula that you're to baptize in the name of the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. There are anti-Trinitarians coming on the scene, and they're from various groups, by the way, that are, there's information being passed along that this was an added text 
We don't find this actually in the earliest manuscripts. You, you don't see this. I'm going to tell you right now, it's a lie from the pit of hell. It's ridiculous. All the manuscripts that we have, the oldest manuscripts, all contain this formula. Every single one of them. Okay? In fact, I know of no ancient manuscripts today that do not contain it. Not one. Let me take it a step further. And I'm going to take you back to the D.K. Now remember, this is late 1st century, early 2nd century. This is what the D.K. says. Now concerning baptism, baptize as follows. After you have reviewed all these things, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In running water, living water. But if you have no running water, then baptize in some other water. And if you are not able to baptize in cold water, then in warm. Get them baptized. Okay, But the point of taking you here is here we have this early 2nd century document said to be uh, by many, written by a by Messianic Jew, and here we find the formula. In addition to all the old manuscripts that we have of Scripture, of Matthew, I'm going to take it a step further, Tertullian, 2nd century again, he says this, not that in the waters we obtain the Holy Spirit, but in the water under the witness of the angel, we are cleansed and prepared for the Holy Spirit. In this case also, a type has proceeded, for thus was John beforehand, the Lord's forerunner, preparing his ways. Thus too does the angel, the witness of baptism, make the path straight for the Holy Spirit, who is about to come upon us by the washing away of sins, which faith, listen to this, sealed in the name or in the Father, in the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here you find even outside of all the earliest manuscripts we've had, we find even external sources. They all carry exactly what Yeshua commanded his disciples. Okay, so when we look at this, what they call the Trinitarian forma, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's legitimately there. I'm making that point so that this is not a point of contention. We need to kill that because it's, it's, it's absurd. It's absurd. The second thing I want to point out is this. Were the early believers dogmatic in the sense of, I have this formula, and we have to follow it like they're reading some spell out of a, out of, out of a magic book? That if I don't say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, none of this is going to mean anything. And, and I mention this again because I've, I've talked to people, well, I wasn't baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so uh, you know my baptism isn't legitimate. Hold on, time out. I want to make something very clear. And typically, when, if, you, if I was the guy that you've had the experience of baptism with, and, and Craig, um, you'll notice I oftentimes simply baptize in the name of Yeshua. And does that qualify? For the whole Trinitarian uh, uh, formula, as they say, absolutely. Actually, what you're going to find is when you go into Acts, we already read it. What did we just read in Acts? We read this. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Yeshua. This is Acts 19. This is when Paul is finding these people who were baptized by John. They needed to be rebaptized. How did he baptize? He baptized them in the name of Yeshua. See, remember what John said in his little epistle. Whoever has the Son has the Father. It's that confession, all right? And that's the point. And let me take it a step further. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. This is Peter. And this is after the Shavuot event. People are freaked out. Therefore, let all the house of Israel assuredly uh, know assuredly that God has made this Yeshua, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. 
And they respond this way. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Messiah Yeshua for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter, baptizing them. You're to be baptized in the name of Yeshua. So my point is, is whether someone had said to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's fine. That's fine. That's recognizing the Godhead in its perfect totality. There's nothing wrong with that. Or if they just said, you're baptized in the name of Yeshua, you're not missing anything, all right? And so what we're going to do is we're going to end here. 